You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Putin and Lukashenko meet. Is Belarus about to be dragged into the war with Ukraine? The Dutch Prime Minister has apologised for his country's role in the slave trade, but some critics have labelled his speech a neo-colonial belch. We'll ask how one begins to ease the pain of 250 years of oppression. And... Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Ex-President Donald Trump should face criminal charges, including insurrection. Those are the findings of a US congressional inquiry into last year's Capitol riot. We'll get the latest as we rustle through the front pages and get a hit of business news. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. North Korea has condemned a Japanese military build-up, its biggest since World War II. Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of rape and two counts of sexual assault by a jury in California. And authorities in China are rushing to boost the number of intensive care beds, health workers and medication supplies as COVID-19 surges through the country. Now... Vladimir Putin visited Belarus for the first time since 2019 yesterday, increasing fears that the country could join in the attacks on Ukraine. This comes as military drills ordered to check the combat readiness of the nation's army came to an end and Russia launched a barrage of drone attacks on Ukraine. Well, I'm joined now by Jenny Mathers, who's a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, thanks for coming on The Globalist once again. How significant is the fact that Putin's gone to Belarus? Normally, Lukashenko comes to him. Absolutely. I mean, this is the the eighth time that the two leaders have met during the course of 2022, and it's the first time that Putin has travelled to Minsk. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of of possible ways of interpreting this uh, significance. One is that, you know, previously Lukashenko has had to go to to Moscow as a supplicant, really asking for things. Please give us more money. Please give us more trade. Please give us more cheap energy. This time with Putin traveling, it makes it look as though he's the supplicant. You know, he's got something to ask Lukashenko for, and he's perhaps not entirely uh, convinced that he's going to get it. Um, of course, it could also be seen as as Putin coming to to twist Lukashenko's arm and, and impose his will in person. But I think Putin is very aware of the nuances of power plays in terms of who goes to whom, who makes whom wait, and so on. And I think this is a subtle step down for Putin. It, it does indicate that you know some of the power is shifted over to Lukashenko's side. And can you tell us more about the joint military exercises between Russia and Ukraine? Were those important? Or could they have been a ploy to keep Ukrainian forces tied up near the border with Belarus? 
Sure. Well, I mean, you know, Russia and Belarusian uh, forces have been uh, working together for for some time. They've been cooperating throughout this war. And of course, uh, Lukashenko has allowed Putin to use Belarus as a staging post for the attacks on Ukraine from the north, particularly the ones that came earlier in the year, um, but also, you know, allowing him to use uh, Belarusian air bases and so on. So, there's there's a significance in the um, in the joint military exercises in the sense that it's very symbolic. It's it's clearly a performance to show that the two countries are working closely together militarily, and it, you know it's attempting to show that they're ready uh, to to spring into action at an instant because these were snap military exercises designed to show that uh, everything can be um, sort of assessed quite quickly. However, you know, Lukashenko has been very careful to keep his military forces out of Ukraine and has even subtly criticized uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, So it's not clear that this is really going to go beyond show and performance. Mm. I mean, Lukashenko's already put down a popular uprising in his country. I wonder if his leadership could survive if he agrees to send his military forces to Ukraine. I mean, we understand from available polls that 90 percent of the Belarusian population would be against it. Yeah, absolutely. It would be deeply unpopular. It would be a very foolish thing for for Lukashenko to do uh, for that reason, because it it could uh, lead to to sort of popular unrest at home. Um, Also, the Belarusian military is not particularly well regarded in terms of its level of professionalism and training and, and equipping and so on. They're not regarded as one of the the world's or even the region's uh, strongest militaries. So it's not clear what uh, militarily significance there would be in bringing them in, apart from, again, the symbolism of saying, look, you know, Belarusia is behind Russia. Uh, Belarusia is doing uh, Moscow's bidding here. Mm. Um, Also, of course, it would make Lukashenko even more dependent upon Moscow than he currently is. If he sends military forces into Ukraine and this then destabilizes his own hold on power, uh, Putin is the one that he turns to 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 stabilize that relationship and and to ensure that he stays in power. But is he in any kind of a position to refuse Putin? And and if he can for now, how long for? Well, I I would point to the fact, again, that that Putin's visit to Belarus does suggest there's a a subtle change in the power relationship and that it's Putin now who's perhaps the supplicant rather than, than Lukashenko. So I think that's important to bear in mind. Um, I'm not convinced that that Lukashenko would have to send forces in. As I've said, they're, they're not; they wouldn't be that valuable uh, militarily for the Ukrainian conflict. Um, and Lukashenko has actually done a very good job over the years of trying to distance himself a bit from from Moscow where he can and try and keep his options open. And so there have been some indications of him making some subtle uh, approaches to the West and even subtle approaches to uh, overtures within his own society to suggest that perhaps, you know, only the the really tough oppositionist would be uh, jailed and and punished and and maybe ordinary people who had just come out into the streets uh, might find that the regime is much more lenient. So I think he's he's a very good tactician, is Lukashenko. He's he's stayed in power of Islam for lots of good reasons. uh, And I I think he probably has some manoeuvres left in him. Mm. Can you tell us about the latest Russian attacks on Ukraine? So I think these are very much in the same pattern that we've seen over the preceding weeks and months. Um, you know, attacks on civilian infrastructure, particularly attacks on uh, power power plants and, and other uh, ways that, that the civilians can sustain themselves and, and the economy can keep going. So very damaging for ordinary people, very, um, you know, creating a lot of hardship, but not actually um, provoking or promoting Russia's strategic military um, gains or, or its aims. And so this is something that we've seen when Russia cannot make militarily significant gains, when it struggles to hold on to the territory that it seized, 
what does it do? It attacks Ukrainian civilian targets. And so it's a sign of weakness, even though it's inflicting enormous damage and hardship. It's nevertheless a sign of military weakness that, that this is what Russia is able to do. Mm. And I'd just like to, to wrap up by looking at how Zelensky has been responding to all of this. We know that he was denied the opportunity to speak to a, a television audience of billions at the World Cup. He did, however, uh, uh, speak to this meeting of leaders in, in, in the Baltics uh, yesterday. What's he been saying? So he's he's very much um, you know making sure that the Baltic states uh, realize that he he appreciates their support. I mean the Baltic states have been among the the strongest in the support of Ukraine in terms of sending military equipment, in terms of supporting you know Ukrainian refugees and so on. Um, so he wants to make sure that that uh, relationship is uh, maintained and strengthened and solidified, uh, and also to to encourage them to get the message out uh, to to the wider uh, international community, especially the United States. That you know, Ukraine needs more weapons of, of even more um, you know different types in terms of protecting the the civilian uh, targets and economy, uh, but also you know being able to to hit uh, strategic targets uh, behind the enemy's lines, both in occupied Ukraine and also in Russia. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That's Jenny Mathers there, and this is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Coming up to 10 past 7 in London, 10 past 8 in Amsterdam. Mark Ritter, the Dutch Prime Minister, has formally apologised for the past actions of the Dutch state, saying that slavery must be recognised in the clearest terms as a crime against humanity. He said that for centuries the Dutch state and its representatives have enabled and stimulated slavery and have profited from it. Well, I'm joined now by Stefan de Vries, who's European Affairs Correspondent at Euronews and BNR News Radio, based in Amsterdam. Stefan, what is the historic Dutch role in the trafficking and exploitation of human beings? Well, in the 17th century, the Netherlands were the dominating maritime and economic superpower. And um, in the Netherlands, that's a period that the history books call the Golden Age. But that term has become controversial. It was actually one of the biggest uh, slave traders of the world. And it stayed so until the the, the middle of the 19th century, whereas the uh, the UK already abolished uh, slavery in the beginning of, of the 18, 19th century, 1807. The Dutch slavery continued until 1863. And it provided the country with a great, great wealth. It, it, it still is one of the richest countries in the world. And, and part of this wealth is built upon um, the, the slave trade. About It's estimated that about 600,000 people worked as slaves in the Dutch former colonies. So it's a big part of Dutch history. But until now, it never has really been recognized as a, um, as a, as a burden in history. Many Dutch people are still proud of that period. Um, until now, the debate has changed. And yesterday, indeed, Prime Minister Mark Rutte um, uh, apologized for the slave trade uh, in the two and a half centuries of the, of the Dutch history. As you say, the, the, the sort of mood has changed. Rutte previously refused to make such an apolo- apology. So, so what changed his mind? 
Well, a couple of things have changed. Um, of course, there is this international Black Lives Matter movement that has changed uh, the debate, very inf influenced the debate in the Netherlands as well. But also, um, since uh, about a decade, there's a, a big uh, a debate in society about Black Pete, which is um, a part of the St. Nicholas celebrations in December. Uh, Black Pete is, was a man, um, well, more or less, um, he, he wore makeup as if he was a black person and and uh, that's uh, started to cause a lot of controversy. Uh, it, it's a, it was a long tradition, and now you rarely see this black peat. But um, groups in Dutch society uh, who come from the former colonies have become far more vocal, and um, the, the debate has become very dominant in Dutch politics the last 10 years. So it is a big, big shift in, in attitude. Um, still, however, there's a part of the Dutch population that is against um, apologizing for slavery. They say, well, we are not guilty. We did nothing. Um, it, it's uh, ridiculous that the government is uh, apologizing for something that happened uh, over two centuries ago. But in general, the mood is that um, indeed there is a big problem in, society, in Dutch society, which is, of course, uh, racism and discrimination. Uh, things have to change and that is also um, an explanation for the shift in attitude of Mark Rutte because indeed you already mentioned it uh, about 10 years ago he really refused uh, any suggestion of apologies to uh, the people who were involved in the slave or who victims of the slave trade. Mm, but it's not only criticism he's facing from within the country many former colonized nations have also opposed this move why? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the choice of the date yesterday became very controversial over the last couple of weeks when the former colonies said that they were not involved uh, about uh, in, in the choice of this date. And uh, the, the fact that the Dutch government this, did this choose this date unilaterally reflects actually a Dutch colonial attitude. So they were insultant. Um, the Dutch Minister of Finance, she traveled to Suriname, one of the former colonies um, in South America, um, to to discuss with the people. And uh, now what happened yesterday was a, a sort of apology, but the, the former colonies, they want an official apology. Uh, they prefer the date of July the 1st uh, next year. And that's the day that marks the 150th birth uh, anniversary of the Dutch abolishing slavery. So they were actually insulted by the fact that The Hague decided on this date um, alone um, and actually it's a typically Dutch Dutch matter that everybody uh, complained and nobody was really happy what was what happened yesterday so there will be a new chance in, in the summer of 2023 uh, when there will be a lot of ceremonies and activities to commemorate the abolition, uh, abolition of slavery uh, in the Netherlands. But what about you know how, how will Rutte make amends? What about recompensation? Well, that's indeed uh, one of the points that's being addressed by the former colonies. They say what is really needed is compensation, and that has been on the table the last couple of days. The Hague uh, is opposed to any form of compensation, although uh, there will be a, um, a, a fund to promote more awareness about the Netherlands' role in slavery, which will get 200 million euros. There will also be a national slavery museum in Amsterdam in the next couple of years, um, but at the this time being, the the Dutch government does not want to talk about any compensation, but that is something that the former colonies demand. They they would like to be compensated for um, the uh, the horrors that have been done by the Dutch uh, two centuries ago. Um, that will be a very long debate, but it is not unthinkable that that in the end will 
eventually happen. Mm. I mean, do you think this could start a global reparations movement? Well, maybe. The Netherlands is one of the first countries in the world to apologize for slavery. Um, it will also change when um, there will be another apology next summer, maybe made by the king. Uh, the king already ordered a, a, a thorough investigation of his own family's role during uh, the so-called golden age and the slave trade. Um, so uh, there is something changing indeed. And if the Dutch um, are going to settle with the former colonies, it could set a precedent for other countries like, for instance, the UK or maybe France uh, to also um, give compensation to those countries they abused uh, so long and that is the uh, yeah which which are basically the basis of the wealth of many European countries. Mm. Uh, and Stefan, finally, this is not j- just something that affects uh, the Dutch, as as you say. But what about museums? Because so many artifacts in there were taken illegally from 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 where they were made. Will those be returned? Well, there is a debate also, indeed, starting simultaneously about museums, Dutch museums, giving back uh, objects uh, from former colonies. Uh, The museums in the Netherlands in general are very open to this question. They do not really oppose it, um, although uh, some argue that these um, returns should be made on scientific grounds and not necessarily on political grounds. But it is shifting indeed. Um, You also see in museums, for instance, the Rijksmuseum, the, the, the big national museum in Amsterdam, them, um, where uh, artworks are being um, commented uh, next to, to, the, to the painting or to a statue about uh, its controversial um, role in history, um, warning people about uh, maybe sensitive uh, content. So um, there is really something changing in Dutch society. At the same time, uh, there is also institutional racism. Um, there have been scandals at the tax services which were linked to systematic discrimination. Only last week, a report revealed that the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs has a a profound culture of racism and discrimination. So there are many problems in Dutch society, but they are being addressed. Unfortunately, the uh, excuses made yesterday by the Dutch Prime Minister were uh, a bit clumsy, uh, but hopefully uh, next summer there will be a new chance to issue a a real real apology uh, to the former colonies uh, of the Netherlands. Stefan, thank you very much indeed. That was Stefan de Vries. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. North Korea has condemned a Japanese military build-up, its biggest since World War II. North Korea warned that Japan could soon see the consequences of the decision and hinted at a technical advance in its long-range missile system. Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of rape and two counts of sexual assault by a jury in California. This marks the second conviction of the Hollywood movie producer who became the face of the Me Too movement five years ago. And authorities in China are rushing to boost the number of intensive care beds, health workers and medication supplies as COVID-19 surges through the country. Officials have acknowledged it's impossible for the testing system to keep track of skyrocketing cases. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
we're going to have a flick through some of the day's papers now with Terry Stiastany, who's a political journalist and author. And Terry, the biggest story uh, reported in the New York Times and elsewhere is, of course, the latest from the January the 6th uh, inquiry. Tell us what's going on. Well, yes, that's right. Um, so the inquiry in its uh, in its last meeting um, basically has recommended that four charges uh, should, they say, be brought against uh, the former president, Donald Trump. So just to go through the charges there, one of insurrection, one of obstruction of the official proceedings of Congress, one of conspiracy to defraud the United States and one of conspiracy to make false statements to the federal government. Um, And so, as you would expect, there's a lot of coverage here uh, in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. Um, The Washington Post is saying that the committee uh, unanimously agreed to refer to criminal charges against the former president to the Justice Department. Um, and there's some really interesting uh, you know, things that uh, the committee members have said, in particular uh, Liz Cheney, who was the vice chairwoman, and she pointed in her opening statement, it says here, to Trump's decision to watch the riot on television rather than taking action to stop it. So she said, no man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. Again, he is unfit for any office. And there's very good analysis, too, from Maggie Haberman. Yes, and Maggie Haberman, who's obviously um, followed this, uh, you know, the whole Trump situation extremely closely for the New York Times. And she's had been running through all of the problems that that Trump is facing. I mean, Donald Trump's obviously sort of responded quite angrily to to what the committee has said. But she points out that not only is there this House Select Committee looking into the riot, but then there is also the House Ways and Means Committee, which has been looking at Donald Donald Trump's tax returns will try to decide whether to publish uh, those documents or, or at least some of those about Donald Trump's tax uh, affairs. And and then also uh, other cases which are going on, you know, also New York's uh, civil suit in the new in New York with the attorney general uh, and also looking at the, ju- the Justice Department investigation that's going on into uh, how the Trump administration mishandled records after he left office. I mean, he's really in deep trouble, isn't he? He really is in deep trouble. And and this is for somebody who, you know, said that he is going to um, have another attempt at running uh, for the White House and, of course, doesn't accept that he, he lost the last election. Um, this, you know, puts him in, in a lot of difficulties. I mean, it's just another line from uh, Liz Cheney here, which is picked up by the Times in London. Every president in our history, she said, has defended this orderly transfer of authority except one. January the 6th, 2021, was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. I mean, that just sums it up, really. Absolutely shocking. Uh, sticking with the Times of London, uh, they're covering these strikes, which are just uh, increasing and increasing. Many people are saying that this is in all but name a general strike. Yes, I mean, there, there is, there's going to be a huge amount of disruption, um, particularly in England and Wales. Uh, so, for instance, we are seeing strikes uh, in the health service. Uh, nurses are going on strike today. Um, ambulance services is going on strike tomorrow. There are also strikes uh, on on the rail, uh, on trains, and there are strikes and the border force uh, at the borders. The Times picks up one particular uh, issue here, which is that soldiers have been brought in or will be brought in tomorrow to drive ambulances, um, 750 members of the armed forces. But they're a bit confused about um, what, what they're supposed to be doing because apparently they have been told they're not allowed to treat anybody, they're not allowed to use the blue lights on the ambulances, and they are not allowed to 
break the speed limit. They've had five days of training and they will only be limited to providing non-emergency transport. But the problem with that, of course, is um, that most, since the ambulance drivers aren't working, the, the only people that will probably get an ambulance sent out to them are the people who, who really need emergency transport. So, yeah, they're unclear. They're not very happy um, about doing this because there were reports over the weekend that the chief of defence staff uh, said, you know, look, we're not spare capacity for striking workers. The armed forces, of course, can't go on strike legally. And they're you know, saying that they haven't had much of a, a much of a pay rise either. Um, but also in the Times, there's this really quite concerning um, a line from an anonymous NHS ambulance chief who says... The best we can hope for is everyone stays indoors, no one falls over, no one gets ill and no one has a car crash. It's just, I mean, it's extraordinary. The Times also um, has a a little piece talking about uh, options for number 10 on how the NHS strikes could end. Rishi Sunak gives in to union demands. They rate that at naught out of five. A below inflation pay rise, they say that's one out of five. One-off bonuses, three out of five. And discussions over next year's payments settlement, also three out of five. I mean, it's hard to see a way out. It is difficult. I mean, I think what you're seeing slightly is um, the government trying to draw lines between some areas. So being slightly more, uh, you know, soft, I suppose, not soft, if you like, uh, sort of amenable to claims from the health service than they are from some of the other uh, public services like rail, for instance, where they're saying, oh, look, these strikes are uh, politically motivated. And But I think, you know, they, they realise that there is a greater deal of of public support for uh, for nurses, for instance, and probably for for ambulance drivers as well. So you know there has been this talk about having a one-off payment for now that doesn't you know isn't ongoing or doing something next year. The question is whether that's going to be enough because nurses in particular are asking for a pay rise, which is, you know, above inflation, which is which is already high. So trying to find some sort of area of agreement is, is quite difficult at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Finally, let's uh, well, let's go to an obituary, the death of Terry Hall from the specials. Yes, this is this is really sad. This was uh, reported overnight, um, the death of Terry Hall, the lead singer of the specials. He was he was only 63. Um, he died after a, a short illness. But there's a, a really interesting um, tribute here to him. There's a lot of coverage in the papers, um, but in, in The Guardian there's an article by Alexis Petridis um, who says, Terry Hall was the self-assured eye of the special storm, and they talk particularly about uh, Terry Hall's kind of manner, you know, and how sort of he had a lot of really upbeat songs, so whether that was with the specials, the kind of scar two-tone music, a lot of that was you know influenced or covers of original um, Jamaican songs, but Terry Hall himself was always quite kind of lugubrious and sort of standing there at what he called the sort of the still centre of this and, and looking quite gloomy because some of the songs were quite gloomy. I mean, he thinks that things like uh, Nightclub and Ghost Town, which people remember, you know, particularly from the early 80s because it came out at the time that there were were riots in the in the UK and it seemed to sort of say something about, you know, about the state of the nation in, in kind of the late 70s and, and the early 80s. Uh, and of course, you know, his politics were really important and the fact that the band uh, was made up of people from from different races and they even found themselves stopped from playing uh, in certain clubs and that you know helped to encourage their kind of political campaigning uh, so yeah great great music and uh, a really interesting appreciation of him here in the guardian terry thank you very much indeed that was terry stiastony and this is the globalist UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, 
we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. And finally, we've got a bit of time to talk business with Susanna Streeter, who's a senior investment and markets analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Susanna, welcome to the show. Uh, Europe has brought in price caps on gas to help struggling consumers. Uh, Tell us more about that. And I'm also interested to know why Britain can't do that too. Yes, well, uh, EU ministers have agreed this plan to cap the price of gas, and it does end months of argument over how to handle uh, the soaring cost of energy, of course. So what's going to happen is that this price cap will kick in if prices on the main European gas exchange, which is uh, called the TTF, so the uh, Title Transfer Facility, um, that's uh, what uh, these uh, gas prices are tracked as. Um, Now, the price cap will kick in when those prices exceed 180 euros. Now, right now, that's per megawatt hour. Uh, Right now, it's currently 108 megawatts uh, an hour. And so it's come down significantly. But the worry is, of course, that as we've seen over the past year, um, gas prices can spike dramatically. And they want to avoid that happening again. But there has been concern that in doing so, it could mean that um, other energy suppliers might send gas supplies, particularly for um, liquefied natural gas to other countries. But that means that the cap is being tweaked so that that won't happen. Essentially, it can only be triggered when these prices are 35 euros higher than liquefied natural gas. So that is the idea behind it. Uh, But it's not happening here in England. But one thing that has been frozen is alcohol duty. Are they hoping just to keep us all drunk so we don't notice the cold? (laughs) Uh, Yes, certainly. Um, That hasn't happened here in the UK. And in fact, uh, businesses were hoping actually that some kind of decision on the energy price cap that's currently in place uh, would be made. Uh, That is due to end in March. Um, But now we hear that this decision on what will replace this energy price cap for businesses uh, won't happen until the new year. So uh, really, uh, lots of businesses still left in the dark about what's going to happen to their energy bills going forward. 39% um, of those, 30% of businesses who say that actually they're going to put up prices in January because of mounting bills say um, it's partly because of energy and um, ener- high energy prices mean that their costs are really shooting up. So they've got to pass that on to consumers, which of course will affect inflation. But yes, coming back to alcohol duty, some um, comfort for the hospitality industry in particular, because now um, uh, the expectation was that prices would go up in February. But now, actually, uh, the duty will be frozen until August 2023. So a little bit of a sigh of relief for hospitality there, because they're really struggling. 93% of hospitality businesses um, said that they were really worried about uh, their operations uh, for December and January. That was the latest snapshot from the ONS a couple of weeks ago. 
Uh, so a glimmer of hope that perhaps if you keep prices a little bit lower, people will keep coming back. Right. So as we sit in our homes, too uh, poor to heat them, but at least we can drink ourselves into oblivion. And if it's still cold, apparently we can, well, we can't because they're in short supply. We would like to buy draft excluders in the form of dash hound dogs. Yes, that's right. And they, they are selling like hotcakes uh, to keep us uh, warm and plug those drafts in our uh, very drafty homes here in the UK, it seems. Anyone who was around in the 70s and 80s um, will remember the draft excluder really come back into fashion. I made one in my home economics class at school. Um, I remember doing that too. And looking at all these obscene prices, paying, you know, lots and lots of money for a draft excluder, and you think, but didn't we just used to stuff a pair of old tights? (laughs) Yes, well, the Woof draft excluders are £44, but apparently they're sold out. Uh, One stock is (laughs) Graham and Green, and the Schnauzer senior draft excluders are selling um, like like nothing before at John Lewis, uh, out of stock. Um, when uh, one reporter looked for them. Um, I can tell you, top tip from me, just get all the excess cushions you have in your house and line them up against the door. They will stop the drafts and also give another excuse for buying more. Absolutely. (laughs) And put a real dog on your lap. I find that really warms you up. And the bottle of chin, of course. Susanna, thanks very much indeed. That was Susanna Streeter. And that's all we have for today's show. Thanks to our producer, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and our studio manager, Nora Hull. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be your host all the way up till The Briefing, which is live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. This is the last time I'll be live with you this year, but I will be popping up uh, across the Aura broadcasting schedule over the next few weeks. Uh, So all that remains is for me to wish you a very, very happy holidays and thank you for listening.